0: Listener Production. Lucy Durack is the human personification of Sunshine. She's one of the most sought-after people in Australian show business, and yet somehow she also manages to make time for everyone. How does she do that? The actress, reality TV star, mum and queen of Australian Musical Theatre is someone we've long wanted to have here on The Weekend Briefing. She surprises and delights, including by admitting that she is not actually a natural-born singer. That is a talent that she worked her butt off for. She got there by working at it day after day after day. Something I really admire. My name is Jamila Risby. This is The Weekend Briefing. Later, I will be joined by the gang at Brooke and Linda's Dream Club podcast to recommend what you should watch, see, do, eat and listen to this weekend. But first, here is the bubbly, beautiful, Lucy Durak. Lucy Durak, welcome to The Weekend Briefing. It is so lovely to see you. It is always a treat to see you. Thank you for having me. So my first question is a weird one. Heads up. Heads up. You are the person... I know who I most find like synonymous with sunshine you are (laughs) so upbeat and bubbly and just a delight to be around and I imagine you have heard that a lot in your life here's my question when you're that person for your friends for your family what do you do when you're having a really off day and they need you to show up for them?
1: Well, that's a really good question. And thank you for saying such kind things, especially coming from you, who is also Sunshine. <laughs> my husband is really great at kind of, I feel like if I am having an off day and I have to show up, well, I, I, I think if I'm having an off day and I have to show up for someone, actually that weirdly helps me a bit because then I'm like, I have a focus mm-hmm. and I'm like, oh, cool. Okay. I can focus on this person and try and make their day better. And then that usually does actually make my day a bit better by focus on trying to help somebody else. Not that I always do that, but that is, I think, usually a good way of kind of getting out of your own kind of doom. Yeah. It's more that I think when I'm having an off day, I, I'm getting better at this and it, it's that I feel terribly guilty when I am having an off day that I'm not that person for people yeah. and I feel really like, oh, I should be this all the time and I'm definitely not. I remember when we first got with Chris since 2007 and when we first got together, the first few times it happened and I'd be like, I'm sorry, like I'm just, you know, I'd be I, I'm sort of the sort of person that I end up just having a big meltdown and generally crying yeah, every now yeah. and again. And that's kind of how it comes out. And he was like, she is human after all. I use that for other people too. And I think that they feel a bit guilty if they're having a bit of an off moment. I'm like,
0: yeah, you are human after all. So I think it's a line from Charlie Brown. The reason I started with that is that I was wandering through the bookshop yesterday. And when you're in the kind of business leadership, self-helpy sort of section, every second book talks about positive thinking or the power of positive thinking on the cover. And I wondered if for you, that's something that comes naturally, or is it like a deliberate practice?
1: I think it's a tiny bit natural, but mostly practice. Yeah. I remember when I was about 10, my mum saying to me one day, "Oh, what's happening to you? Like you're going through a bit of a spell. You're normally our bubbly person. And I was like, am I? am I normally a bubbly person? And I was like, oh no, I felt so like worried that I wasn't going to be that bubbly person that I feel like I then started to look for measures to kind of be that person for her and for other people. And my granddad who passed away just at the beginning of COVID was genuinely just a naturally very grateful person and like would always go on and say, Look how lucky I am. And yet he and my grandma had arrived from South Africa in Australia with absolutely nothing and his dad died shortly after and he wasn't able to go to the funeral. Like he had some really hard things happen to him Mm. and yet he was always super positive and super grateful for everything. My grandma passed away a year after he died, but they were such lovebirds. Like my granddad was in his 90s and my grandma was in her late 80s when they passed away. And he'd say, look at this woman. Isn't she the most beautiful woman you've ever seen? Can you believe how lucky I am? And he'd get tears in his eyes just being so grateful and my granddad was an architect but he was also an artist and he'd look at nature and he'd just look and say look at that flower like can you believe that that is nature and he wasn't particularly religious or anything but he had like a real just a gratitude that I've really worked hard to hone and focus and bring into my daily life because I think that that generally is what saves me when I'm having a bad day I'm very much against toxic positivity and I'm trying that for my kids as well to sort of be like that's okay like if you're not feeling great all the time and Polly's sick so she has a lot of big emotions and trying to sort of help her be in that because I think sometimes I have tried to deny myself of that and be like, no, that's not a good thing. I should just move on from that and then obviously that doesn't end very well. Um,
0: It's definitely a practice. Has that helped through COVID and how have you managed through the pandemic, especially with kids at home?
1: Yeah, that has definitely been a big part of my practice. I got caught on a loop doing Deepak Chopra's 21 Days of Abundance yeah. meditations. I did eight loops of it. <laughs> I actually got, I think, dependent, too dependent. you mastered it. I got scared to get off the merry-go-round because I was like, if I stop doing these, like I'm not gonna, I think I'm not gonna cope because it was I felt like it was the only thing that was kind of like it was part of if I could if I just did that. And they're very short, like they're under 15 minutes each. And I couldn't do it with them closing my eyes. I didn't have time to do that, but I do them whilst I was walking or doing chores or something at home these days it is much harder I find with having my kids and stuff to write them down but I do find the writing down of what you're grateful for has been really useful for me in the past but just actually actively thinking about what I'm grateful for and like thinking you know when the water hits me in the shower or just simple things like that and it sounds sort of silly and woo-woo I guess but you know like everyone I've I've found like parts of the last few years just so hard I don't have families like my family are in WA so I haven't you know, our borders has been closed for such a long time.
0: So how long since you've seen your folks? My mum came
1: over in May for yeah. a week because I actually got really sick in May. Um, they accidentally punctured my bowel during the colonoscopy. Oh my numbers. gosh. <laughs> yeah. And so she came over to help for a week. So that was the last time I saw mum. But my whole family, I haven't seen them in yeah, nearly a year.
0: Normally we'd see each other every like two months or three months. So. Let's stick with WA because that's where you grew up. Tell yes. me about what kind of kid you were. And clearly I am most interested in whether or not you were a musical theatre nerd at school.
1: <laughs> I was definitely a musical
0: theatre nerd at school. I wasn't one of those kids who was a really good singer. Like I was... I was fine.
1: Like I could sing in tune. My passion just overrode it. And like I wasn't one of those kids that you see on like, you know, talent competitions who were just naturally like amazing from the get-go. I auditioned for The Sound of Music as a, I don't know, maybe eight-year-old. And I like I loved The Sound of Music with a passion. And I didn't get a call back or anything. And I was like, oh, okay. Oh, I'm like, I love this so much, but I mustn't be very good at it. And it was just this real up call. And so when I did finally get, when I was in year six, when I was 11, which in those days was like your second last year of primary school. My music teacher at my school that I went to, he just happened to be involved. He ended up actually being my senior teacher down the track, but he happened to be involved in the WA Opera Company and he auditioned just my year sixes and sevens from our school so like it wasn't a very big talent pool that they were pulling from and and they weren't specifically entertainment kids or anything I was one of the 12 children who were in the WA Opera Company's Carmen as the children's chorus and we like we wore st- sort of ripped clothes because we were meant to be poor children of the streets and in my memory they smeared us with Vegemite but I'm not sure <laughs> that's one of those childhood memories that has merged with something else but it smelled like Vegemite whatever they to make us look dirty and I just loved it, it was about it was like my first gig it went for about a month and I just sobbed when it finished just thinking like I might never get to do this again I loved it so much and I kind of didn't get to do it from I went to a normal school and I didn't do particularly much performing arts so it wasn't until I got well into high school I auditioned for the high school musical in year eight and year nine I didn't
0: get in and then wow um, got in for year 10 11 and 12. I hope those music teachers are like kicking themselves now.
1: (laughs) I was I was one of those kids who looked really young as well. So my mom always used to, I don't know whether that was the truth. I probably just actually wasn't good enough, but my mom always used to say, Oh, you know, you just look a bit too much like a little kid. And they were doing Greece and city of angels. And she's like, those people are meant to look like adults and you don't look like an adult. I think I probably wasn't just, just wasn't good enough. But anyway, I did end up getting into it. And then it became my life. Like, I was just my whole year would revolve around the school musical, and I was lucky that we had these brilliant teachers who were just really passionate. Who like it wasn't a specialist music or drama school; it's just a normal school. But the head of drama is still the head of drama at John Tunbridge no College I went to School. Yeah, and they um he's still doing the yearly musical and inspiring so many young generations of, of performance.
0: So you said that you loved it. Is what you loved about being on stage and being part of a musical then? the same as what you love about it now.
1: Yes, it, it sort of is. It's a feeling, I guess, mm. more than anything. And it was that sort of thing. Like I remember as a kid watching movie musicals and being like, how did they all just know all the same dance steps in that street scene? <laughs> they're so clever. <laughs> they're so clever. And then once you have that feeling of like being part of a team that is doing that and it sounds nice and it looks nice and you're in costume and you're with like-minded people who equally love what they're doing. Like I remember my first week of, I studied at WAPA um, Musical Theatre and we had a, this library tour tour in the library tour, the 18 of us were sitting there that we were learning how to search things on the computer because it was a million years ago and somebody said, oh, so say you want to search something and somebody said Sondheim and somebody joked and went, who's that? And everyone laughed and I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm Uh with my people. Everybody knows who Sondheim is and I'm normally in circles who wouldn't know who that is because they're not passionate about musical theatre in the same way. So I, I think that it's being around people with that shared, like, real love of whatever that is, I guess, but for me it is definitely... Yeah, music and theatre. And I love all that stuff so much. I still sometimes just can't believe that it happens. Like mm. I've got to do it because I still do, like every time I finish anything, even now, I think, what if that was the last one? Like maybe I won't get to do it yeah. again. And so it feels so exciting once you get that, you know, such an adrenaline rush to even just get an audition and be like, oh my gosh, there's just that hint of possibility. Yeah.
0: Well, you've, you know, you have that musical theatre career that there would be. Thousands of kids around this country who are at the end of their high school or going into university, going, "That's what I want to do. I want Lucy Durack's job. How do I do that? How do I get that?" Can I ask about the singing? Because part of me is a little bit skeptical about this. Oh, I was kind of an average singer, and then yeah. But I'm going to go with your version of events. Talk to me about a passion that drives you to get better. Because if you're a kind of average singer at high school, how do you end up you now?
1: Well, like to be honest, I think I'm a and this sounds like more humble than it is, but I genuinely think I'm I'm a relatively average singer now. Like when I think of people who no, are I have definitely like, disagree. naturally beautiful. Like I look at like Gemma Ricks, who plays Elsa in Frozen and who I've played opposite lots because she was our alphabet in Wicked. And she just has this voice that sort of just flies out of her like. I think maybe it's because I know how much I've put into this and I started singing a lot more like where I sort of normally sit is actually a lot more classical than most of my career has been. And I've done a lot of classical training. And the reason I did that was because I didn't get into the full-time course at WAPA straight out of high school. I got into, they have a part-time course and I got it. It's a certificate. I got into that and they said to me, you know, you have to work really hard on your dance and your singing. And so I went to my, This man, Ian Westrip, who's a WA singing teacher and was one of the teachers at the time at WAPA, and he said, yeah, you're going to need to work on that. I was doing one lesson a week with him and he said, you're going to need three lessons a week. And I was like, well, I can't afford three lessons yeah. a week. He's like, no, 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 pay for one lesson, but come for three lessons. I'll give you three lessons for the price of one. So for all of that year, out of the goodness of his heart, I came and I was his first lesson Monday, Wednesday and Friday, 9am. And he always used to say, you really need to get your classical technique good. And so I worked really hard with him on that. And then he ended up being my singing teacher right throughout WAPA. Well, I did get in at the end of that year and it was just so exciting. I actually think I got in on a, um, I think somebody turned down a place. I think I I got in on like a, just by the skin of my teeth because everybody knows what day people are getting offers and the whole day I didn't get an offer. And I was beside myself crying on the couch to my mum. And then late in the day, I got an offer and I I reckon it was that somebody got an offer, got something else or couldn't do it, didn't want to come and turned it back in. And so I got the dregs, and I'm so
0: stoked. (laughs) Thank you to that person. I hope they've yeah. gone off and become a dentist and are very happy with that career choice. Totally. Whatever they've gone on to do, I'm sure that they're happy, but thank you for your dregs. So tell me about your I this sounds so cliche, but I don't know what other words to use for it. Like what's the first big adult break? I think from my research it's Mamma Mia. Is that right?
1: Yeah. I had a very lucky break in that. In between second and third year of WAPA, I came to Melbourne to visit some friends and kind of to, I knew that I probably would need to move from, to Melbourne or Sydney from Perth once I graduated to have a real go at it. And I was just sort of having a little look at both cities. And whilst I was in Melbourne, I'd been a huge fan of Natalie O'Donnell whilst she was at WAPA and I was in high school and I'd gone and watched her in various shows. And she was opening as Sophie the Young Girl in Mamma Mia. I went and I met her and I, I'd written her a fan letter when she'd opened of course yeah. and friends of mine had said, Oh, you know, they'd organized for me to meet her when I was on this trip in between second and third year. And I met her and we got on like a house on fire. And to this day, she's like one of my closest friends. But I started out as like just a massive fangirl of hers. Anyway, I went back to WAPA and started the year and I got a phone call saying, well, Actually, our head of musical theatre, David King, who's actually just about to retire, he came in and he said, can I talk to you outside? And I just had that moment in my stomach where I was like, oh, my gosh, I've, like, accidentally done something and I'm going to get kicked out of Whopper and I don't know what it is and i like, I hate getting in trouble, but I thought something like that had happened because he looked very serious and he was like, oh, the team from Mamma Mia are auditioning and they've asked to fly you over on Wednesday to audition for Mamma Mia. And I was like, at this time, I'd been out of Perth twice. Um, And they're like, can you fax? Cause it was like, can "Can you fax over your headshot and your bio? And I'd done nothing apart from Carmen as an 11 year old. So I, did that and I had no idea how they'd know who I was like I was just I'd lived in suburban Perth my whole life anyway later in the day nat O'Donnell called me and she said now don't freak out um did somebody call you today about mama me and I said yeah and she said I put in a good word for you because I just feel like you've got the right vibe for it and I told them that I'd heard you sing which I know I haven't but I asked around and people said that you could sing too anyway she'd gotten me this audition and they did they flew me which I just at, at, in those days just to me seemed like the hugest thing that could have possibly happened. And I auditioned on the stage of the Princess Theatre in Melbourne and later in the week, yeah, got told that I had this part. So I ended up finishing up Whopper a little bit early. It was quite a complicated process in the end, but everybody was really kind and worked it out so that I could finish a bit early and start in Mamma Mia.
0: I feel like the TV shows and the movies that are made about any form of the entertainment industry paint a picture of ruthless competitiveness and yet that's a story of another woman reaching out to help someone else out do you think that's more common than the alternative
1: i do like and that really has been like she's always now been such a touchstone for being that like i remember when when I did get into my mirror and got to know her, like I remember she got in an audition and she looked at it and she was like, oh, it's in America. Oh, my friend Fiona is dating this guy in America. She'd be really good for this. I should give her like, and I, she's such a generous of spirit person. And she was the lead in the show. So I was like, oh my gosh, I too, I'd watch those shows. And, and I had seen some competitive sides to people, particularly actually once I got into Mamma Mia, some people in my year, again, like I'd never been a threat. Like I was always a bit of an underdog who scraped in, was kind of okay. But then, um, so I don't think anyone thought that I was going to do anything. And then when I got this job, everyone was like, wait, what, how did you, yeah. and then I got, saw these other sides to people that I had never witnessed because they, Yeah, I don't think they really thought much of me. And more and more so, it's women championing other women in the musical theatre industry. And I have a really close-knit group of women who I admire and we really stick together. In fact, some of them gave me this necklace for my birthday um, with the initials of my family on it. And I guess as well, like anything, it's such a specific job that we do and it does require quite a lot of sacrifice. And so once you get to a certain point, you need the people around you who understand the sort of sacrifices that you're making especially once you become a mum and then you're trying to tour and all of these things and so to have other women who are at the same positions as you it's nice to have that kind of support network of people who have yeah just that experience as well to be able to give you advice it's been really positive and I've largely found like 99% of people incredibly supportive.
0: I'm not going to go through show by show because we don't have that kind of time but I really do want to do that so just know that I want (laughs) to but I am going to ask about Wicked because I feel like that was when you started to become more of a household name you became someone people knew because it had such a long run it was so beloved can you tell me why you think it is that Australia loved that musical so much and also what made you want to be in it so much?
1: Well, I was obsessed with that musical. So I, I'd like put it on my vision board. I had like done so much visualizing of doing that show because I think because I do have a fairly specific voice, it doesn't just sit in any musical. I heard Kristen Chenoweth singing and I was like, oh, singing popular. And I remember being in the freezing cold Melbourne night. My friend was showing me the seat, um, had put on the CD of Wicked for the first time. And he played me "To Find Gravity and I was like, oh my God, that is incredible. And then he played me popular and I was like, oh. I could do, I could do that. I feel like that's maybe my jam, and so I then became obsessed with it. They were popular, please. It's all about popular. It's not about aptitude. It's a way of you, view. so it's very shrewd to be very, very popular like me. <laughs> I think that it's a real mix of things as to why Australia and the world loves the show in that it is, it's a story of somebody becoming unprejudiced. And I think that Mm -hmm. that is part of what it is, is that Glinda does start as she's, I like to think, and I think that it's important that you play Glinda as not too mean or too much of a bully, but somebody who's just unaware of her privilege and unaware how good she's got it. And she's kind of having fun. And then she gets that moment when she sees Elphaba she she's been nasty to her at mm. the ball. And she realizes her way and that how much of I an mean, effect she's had on somebody. And that's such a huge moment. And then from then on, I feel like she dedicates her life to not being that person and trying to get past that. Alphabet is so powerful. And I mean, this is obviously largely from a Glinda perspective since I played Glinda. But then I think Elphaba stands up for so much and she's such a fighter and a warrior. And it's the story, and, and that it's a story of their friendship and women's friendship. No matter what's happening politically, something resonates in the world, I think something resonates within that story as well. So there's quite a few layers to that. And we all just have the Wizard of Oz in our kind of collective psyche from so early that it's got these tones of that as well. So I think there's just so many parts to it, but it just does have that kind of magic about it. Like, I feel like there's a show every now and again that comes along that just was, for whatever reason, the right things have come together. And it's a story that we need to know as a collective generation. And it was a, an important story. And I think the story of an underdog succeeding and and a misfit finding her way. And yeah, I just love being there to kind of support Elphaba throughout this uh, kind of epic thing.
0: Tell me about what life looks like now, because you've done The Masked Singer, you play Rose on Neighbours, you've done a bunch of other TV, you're also doing theatre outside of musical theatre. How do you make all of the bits work with kids. And I want to I want to be clear that if you were Luke Durack, I would also be asking that question. <laughs> yes, thank you. Well, I do
1: have an incredible husband who is incredibly supportive and makes it happen. Pre-covid, my mum would often fly in and help us mm. for big stretches of time because we both work in the industry and sometimes we work together and sometimes and the in which case then neither of us can look after the kids and so we just have a good network of really lovely babysitters but it is like incredibly challenging at times and it's just a constantly evolving thing like I just I'm constantly just trying to organize childcare for the next sort of month or two months ahead and try and make sure that everybody's sorted out and it's it's just like high just a lot of organizing really And luckily I'm usually fairly organised. The last few weeks, like the Christmas, New Year period is so busy as well because we've come out of COVID of not like so much. I mean, when I say nothing, I have been super lucky that I've been able to work in the television world over the last couple of years, mostly, but everything's just like sprung back into life. And I have found it really overwhelming and challenging and that, mum guilt of being like it's the festive season and it's you know I, the kids are on holidays and I want to be there doing all of that stuff and my mum did stay at home with us until my younger sister was at school and I have like great memories of just being able to do all those sorts of things and I'm not that mum I'm the mum who's working six days a week sometimes seven days a week and just trying to do the best that I can so it
0: is yeah it's, it's challenging. Have you been back on a stage with a live audience again since the lockdowns ended?
1: Uh, Not this lockdown, no. Um, So I'm about to do that. I'm playing a character in a show called Touching the Void with the Melbourne Theatre Company and that opens sort of towards the end of January and... It's an epic show anyway, because it's the the real life story of the two those two gentlemen who climbed Silla Grande in Peru, and one of them broke his leg, Joe Simpson, real life character who, person who's still alive. And Simon, who was helping him, thought he died and cut the rope and it's and he hadn't died and he got out. So it's this epic tale that they've made a documentary about, and Joe Simpson's written a book about, and he was apparently kind of hallucinating because he was so sick on the way out that his sister was there going him on. So I play his sister, but it's really epic. And we have this giant mountain that like actual mountain that we're climbing into play. <laughs> it's on a revolve and it's very like the whole thing's really epic. That sounds incredible. I think it's going to be really interesting. There has been this sense of just getting back on stage and, you know, I mean, go, I've gone to see some theatre since we've gone back in and that's been really emotional just sitting in an audience yeah. with my mask on feeling really emotional. It's been like magic that, sort of
0: a little bit scary because you just think hopefully everything's fine and it is so far, but enough, you know, to keep doing it. The TV and entertainment industries are kind of famous for valuing women when they're younger and not as we get older. Yeah. How do you feel about that? Do you think it's changing?
1: I think it is a little bit changing. I do. And I think that we're starting to realize that like women, you know, past their thirties, forties, fifties are like our major audience members as well. So people want to see their lives reflected on stage. And so I think that it is shifting, but of course there is still that, like, I can see I'm getting more wrinkles. I can see I'm aging. Both of us are peering into the screen, just checking. It is that kind of ingrained thing of, oh no, like we can't have wrinkles, but we do have wrinkles because we're aging. And I, but I look at people like, I liked so much watching Ted Lasso as did so many people, but I liked that the women in that looked like yes. women who were aging their own age and they didn't, hadn't done like definitely nothing against anyone who does whatever they want with their face. I totally am like all for you doing whatever makes you feel happy. But I like personally liked seeing women and I, it sort of made me, go oh I would like to be that person too like I'd like to be somebody that people can go oh it's it's okay like she looks like a woman who's aging and has had kids and is moving through life and she's and that's okay because you know you're allowed to do that.
0: Lucy thank you so much for sharing parts of your life your love of musical theatre and being my guest on The Weekend Briefing. It has been an honour it's always so nice to see you Jan thank you so much. That's it for my conversation with Lucy Durack. Don't go away. The Weekend List is coming right up. Welcome to The Weekend List and welcome to both Brooke and Linda from Brooke and Linda's Dream Club, the incredible pop culture podcast with me. Hello to both of you. Happy New Year. Hi, Happy Happy New Year. Year 2022. Can't believe it. It can't be worse than the last two years, folks. Don't think it's going to only get better.
2: Yeah, that's something that people say at the end of movies. And then it's like, the sequel's coming. Because all of a sudden you look yeah. up and there's some spaceship there's coming a comet over the, coming the town. Towards us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's literally that. So,
0: did anyone else notice that Brooke also touched her head when, instead of I touching wood? I always do that. I do that all the time. Because that's where your wood that's is. That's where my wood is. How dare you? How dare you insult that beautiful brain of yours? I am outraged.
3: No, it's more about my wooden forehead, you know? It's a sign of strength in my.
2: <laughs> her Botox is just putting wood on her forehead. Yeah, my bo- it's like a. She wooden can't raise plank. her eyebrows anymore.
0: <laughs> it is going to be a good new year, everybody. It definitely is, and I am up for some recommendations. It is summer. I want something to fill my mind with froth and bubble. Brooke, what have you got for me?
3: I have a really beautiful album for you to listen to. Now, you have to listen to the whole album. Well, you don't necessarily have to, but I would recommend it. It's this really beautiful collaboration between an electronic musician called Floating Points, an American jazz musician called Farrow Sanders, and the London Symphony Orchestra. So it was released last year. It's called Promises, and it's this really beautiful, like, Album that just, I don't even know how to describe it. I mean, Linda's better at talking about music than I am. I can tell you about how it made me feel. You listen to it and it's totally immersive. You just sort of lay there and hear all of these weird and beautiful sounds come together. My favourite part is when the strings come in, which is about two thirds of the way through on the record. So I'm not sure exactly which movement it is probably like five or six, I would imagine. And it's one of those ones where you just sort of like are moved to tears, no matter what sort of mood you're in. And not in a sad way necessarily, but more in like a reflective way. So it's beautiful for just like, you know, sitting there and chilling out or like cooking or just sort of like pottering about the house, which I used it to do a lot last year. So that's my recommendation.
0: that sounds absolutely glorious and folks you can be listening to Brooke's music recommendation at the same time as you're doing a little bit of reading. I'm not giving you something too intense I'm actually recommending a book of poetry today. So Maxine Beniba who is an incredible Australian author slash national treasure has a new book of poetry out called How Decent Folk Behave. It is the most stunning, upsetting, moving, joyful book. You can dip in and out of a couple of poems at a time. It doesn't feel like it is too taxing to do that. But I promise you that there will be words and phrases that stay with you for a really long time. Maxine writes about politics. She writes about our place in the world. She writes about race. She writes about gender. And she does it in a way that I find mind-blowing. As someone who struggles to cut down the words of every column I write for the newspaper into the tiny word limit, I don't know how she manages to say so much with three or four words at a time or sometimes seven or eight words and she seems to convey more with that little couplet than I could in an entire book. The poems speak of the world that is and they are also a promise for what the world could one day be. I found it incredibly, incredibly uplifting. And and honestly, Maxine is probably my favourite Australian author. So I would read her shopping list very happily, but this is better than that.
2: (laughs) What do you reckon would be on her shopping list?
0: I feel like there'd be a lot of bickies. I reckon she's a bicky eater. Like there'd be a lot of like yummy biscuits on Maxine's shopping list. That
2: would list. be a great podcast to listen to, wouldn't
3: yeah. it? Guessing people's shopping that lists. That would be great, like celebrity shopping list. Yeah.
2: Anyway, well, I would that be is, in. That will be the podcast I'll recommend next time because I'm going to start it. I'm <laughs> patenting that idea. But the one that I'm going to recommend right now, my next one is a podcast. Now. I was sent, you know when someone sends you one episode of something and then I listened to it and I went so deep that I then listened to the entire thing. So Mm. it's a podcast called Am I Normal with Mona Chalabi. Mona Chalabi is a data analyst and journalist from London. She's done this podcast series with TED Talks, and it's basically her asking the question of Am I normal? in all these different ways. So the first episode that was sent to me was called The Spermageddon Is Coming and it was about (laughs) what men should be thinking is normal in terms of their sperm count and how they should be checking on their fertility as much as women. What she does is basically ask a question at the start of each episode like, how many friends should I have as an adult? Should I move house or should I stay where I live right now? Should I move countries? Is it okay to marry your cousin? How long should it take me to get over my ex-boyfriend? Amazing. And she takes it to a scientific level. So she looks at data, statistics, talks to scientists, talks to psychologists. I love it because I'm a sucker for evidence-based research, but then also with a personal story attached. So I smashed through, honestly, every episode of this podcast series this year and it's taught me things. And it's made me think about my life in different ways. And made you think about sperm a little bit. Oh, my God, I'm sending it to every guy that I know. Yeah. Not just wombers need to be thinking about their fertility. There's this idea that spermers are these well-oiled baby-making machines, that they're able to produce that white gold well into their 80s, that they can always make great swimmers at the drop of a hat or the flick of a wrist. Spermers can apparently just sit back, be as relaxed as George Clooney and not even think about fatherhood until well into their 40s or 50s. Must be nice.
0: In this new year of 2022, let us all think about sperm. (laughs) 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 To quickly get get me out of that situation. (laughs) I have a cooking recipe, another recipe. All recipes are cooking recipes for your new year, everyone. It is hot and the weather is delicious and you need to be making Yotam Ottolenghi's rolled pavlova. (sighs) Usually he does it with peaches and blackberries on top. I also quite like it with plums and any kind of berries on top. It sounds hard. It sounds really hard because pavlova is one of those things most people like to just buy from Coles or Woolies and put some stuff on the top. Don't do that. Don't do that, please. Make a little bit of effort. Have a go at this. It's actually quite simple. Honestly, it's just egg whites and a lot of sugar. Anyone can do it. It looks magnificent, and everyone will think you are incredible when they come over for Ooh. dinner or a pool party. Or you're heading down the beach. You will be very impressive if you have a go at it. You can obviously get it as part of his wonderful cookbook suite, which he collaborated with Helen Go, who's an Australian chef. Uh, or you can Google it, and you'll find it on the internet for free. Don't tell Yotam. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Yotam. Brooke and Linda, thank you for being back with me. Happy New Year to both of you. For those of you who are. Looking Looking for a new listen in your new year you can't go past Brooke and Linda's Dream Club podcast which is of course on the listener app along with the briefing. While you're there leave us a rating and a review pretty please. We will be back with the latest headlines straight to your headphones bright and early on Monday morning from 6am. Listener